Well, good morning, everyone. In a land far, far away, in a time long, long ago, one hobbit spoke to another hobbit and said this. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And friends, as we open up the Bible today, in a sense, there is no knowing where we might be swept off to. As we um, go on this adventure, we might find ourselves in unfamiliar and at times uncomfortable territory. But it is an adventure worth going on. And God calls us as his people to open up the Bible and follow where the Bible leads. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to read Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, verses 9 through to 18, uh, which says this. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. For you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts uh, that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk, chapter 1. With one hand, the God of the Bible opens the door to the fearsome Chaldeans to come through. Judgment is coming to the people of God for their wicked and unjust ways. Chapter two, with the other hand, the God of the Bible points a finger at the Chaldeans calling out their wickedness and their injustice and declaring his opposition against them. Habakkuk the prophet finds himself in uncomfortable territory. He finds himself in confusing terrain, you see, because the scene in front of him involves uh, evil, uh, injustice, judgment, humanity, God. It is a confusing scene. How do all of these things fit together? How is it possible that they all might exist in the same place at the same time? These are questions in Habakkuk's heart and Habakkuk's mind and some of these questions he expresses in words. And you today may have some similar questions. How is it possible 
how is it possible that all of those things can exist at the same time in the same place? Well, friends, I want to begin by telling you that I have no, um, no simple, neat and tidy response for you. No perfect picture postcard scene to paint for you because quite simply, the Bible doesn't paint a perfect picture postcard scene for us. And at many times, the scene that the Bible uh, paints can be a little bit confusing, can be mysterious. But you know what? God has plenty to say about these things. And though it might at times feel a little bit awkward and a little bit jagged and we're not quite sure how the bits fit together, friends, I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us to receive the Bible on its own terms. I want to encourage us to receive what God has to say to us in the terms that God brings it to us. And that's part of what it is to go on that that kind of biblical adventure that we talked about at the start. Okay. so what is it that God has to say to us? What is it that is clear maybe in this passage? Well, the first thing that I'm going to say is that God opposes evil. God is not like Anakin Skywalker. Um, you know, Anakin took a while to find himself. Um, he got connected with the Jedi, but then he was tempted across to the dark side. And a little bit later on in life, mm, have I made the right decision here? Should I have gone the other way? Oh, I'm kind of on the fence here. Friends, you know, the God of the Bible doesn't sit on fences. The God of the Bible is where he has always been, which is firmly on the side of good. He is actively and utterly opposed to evil in all of its forms. You know, when injustice is done or when evil is done or when rules are broken, we expect things to be said or done by those in a place of a responsibility or position of authority or those who, um, again, carry some responsibility for ensuring justice. We expect them to say something or do something. right? And it's a surprise when they don't. You see, you can tell a lot about a person by the things that they don't tolerate. And the person could be the most relaxed, uh, chilled out, laid back uh, person in the world. The reality is we all have certain things which we won't tolerate. Certain things which if we, if, uh, if, if we hear them in our presence or we see them, we say something, we do something, right? We, we can't just let the thing slide. And, you know, what a person doesn't tolerate can tell you quite a bit about that person. It can tell you quite a bit about their deeply held values their convictions, the things are right in their bones, right? They can tell you a lot about a person. Well, can I say to you, friends, based on this passage, in fact, based on the Bible from cover to cover, there are some things, many things, which the God of the Bible does not tolerate, many things which the God of the Bible is actively opposed to. Evil and injustice. He is not sitting on the fence. He is not unmoved and he is not silent. And as we look and we reflect on the world around us, it can feel like we, we, we might ask the question, well, what does God think about all of this? What does God say about this? What is God going to do about any of this? Well, friends, I want to say to us that God is utterly, utterly, utterly opposed to evil from cover to cover, not just back then, but still now, okay? And that is really good news, can I just say? It is really good news that God is opposed to evil. He is not on the fence. 
So what does evil look like or what can evil look like? And it can express itself in a whole wide range of forms. But there are um, two ways which we see in this passage, which I'd just like to shine a light on for us for a few moments. The first way involves evil deeds which are, um, are done to enrich oneself. Um, some of you will know Kath Oaks, who is part of our church. Kath is a good friend. She is wise and godly and in many ways has enriched my life. Kath is a scientist. She works in a lab and I had a conversation with her last week and we were talking about um, like science education. We're talking about GCSEs and A-levels and I was asking Kath like, you know, how much of what you learned back then do you still use and apply now? How useful was that? And she she turned to me and said to me, Ash, what, what you need to understand is that a lot of people think that working in a lab, everything's really organised and really planned and we're making these calculations and everything's got to be right and under certain conditions. But what you need to understand is that it's all pixies and fairy dust, is what she said to me. And she, she had a slight smirk on her face as she said that I think she was having me on. Um, I think there's a little bit more than pixies and fairy dust that goes on in her lab. But the reality is for many of us, we, we can be tempted to think of evil in that way. It just happens. Someone's having a particularly bad day and they make a bad decision. Or even when we think about the Chaldeans, you might think, well, oh, maybe these guys were just opportunists, right? Maybe a door was open, an opportunity was there and they just took it. No, friends, the reality is evil, evil, evil is planned. Evil is planned, it is thought through, it is mulled over, it is considered. And it's as though what, what happens is that in the human heart, when, whenever you see um, uh, evil things done, evil deeds, um, we always need to recognise that that always starts in the heart. And it's as though in a laboratory of the human heart, we're, we're, we're brewing up a concoction, right? We're brewing up a concoction of pride and greed and creativity. And out of that concoction comes the evil deeds. And that's what we found with the Chaldeans, right? So again, th these guys would have organized and planned and strategized and had, me had meetings together about how are we gonna get into this nation? How are we gonna get into that nation? How are we gonna take over? What's our military strength? What's their military strength? How are we gonna plunder? How are we gonna take resources from these guys? How are we gonna use those resources to enrich ourselves and be in a stronger position to take over this nation? Organized, planned, thought through, considered. But you know what? The God of the Bible speaks into all of this. And he says that actually the day will come when those evil deeds, those evil ways will in fact testify against the Chaldeans. Those things in which they took so much confidence and so much pride, those things that they paraded to the world, those very things will be the things that testify against them because the reality is friends that that no evil deed is ever unaccounted for it's like a bank statement or a credit card statement it's all there what happened who was involved when it happened and God has it all God has it all on record and it's as though the Chaldeans have a bad line of credit, right? And what's going to happen is one day God will put a stop to things. He'll put a pause on things and he will shut that account down and he will take it all away. He will demand payment. That's what we find there in the passage. Those very things in which they took confidence will testify against them. And that is good news, can I just say. It is good, good news.
So evil ways to enrich oneself. Secondly, evil ways to shame others. I am someone who highly appreciates the life and work of C.S. Lewis. So much so that I actually wrote a, a master's dissertation on him. And um, early on in that process of the dissertation, um, I, I had a, the privilege of really with a few people from the church, but a, we had a, a book group and we uh, read together some of the uh, books in the Narnia Chronicles series. And we read the books together and we, we talked about them every few weeks. And um, as we read and as we reflected, we, we realised that uh, Lewis is a master when it comes to portraying good and evil an absolute master when it comes to it. And in one of the books, A Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there was one, there's one particular chapter um, which just gets you in the heart every single time. And it involves Aslan the lion going to the stone table and essentially losing his life. He gives his life on behalf of another. And the white witch is there and different other animals are there. And uh, in the dead of night, Aslan's life, King Aslan, his life is taken away from him. And it's a really difficult chapter to read. I've read it multiple times, but each time I come back to it, it's heart-wrenching to read. But the interesting thing is, in our, in our group of people, in our book group, um, someone said something really insightful about that chapter. And they said that, you know, that the hardest thing about the chapter was not so much the fact that, that Aslan was wrongly killed. He was like, you know, killed on behalf of someone else. Um, they said that the hardest thing was the sense of shame that was heaped on Aslan. Regal, kingly, glorious Aslan was heaped with shame. He was mocked, he was jeered, he was laughed at, there was cackling. The truly glorious one was being shamed. But do you know what, as hard as it was to read that chapter from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I'm reminded that Aslan King Aslan is a fictional character. I'm reminded that one point in a particular point in history, there was a man called Jesus who, like Aslan, gave his life on behalf of others. And who, like Aslan, was shamed. He was jeered and he was mocked and he was scorned. He was, he was dressed up in mockery. There was, a, um, there was a sign placed over his head on the, on the cross in which he died. And the sign said, the king of the Jews. And it was a sign said in mockery. And he was looked at and he was laughed at and he was shamed. The truly glorious one. The perfect man. The one who created all things, the one who has always existed, the one who is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honour, had shame heaped on him. It is a particularly heinous form of evil. It is a particularly heinous form of evil to heap shame on another. Why is that? Well, God has made people in his own image and in his own likeness. And to put shame on another person is almost to dehumanise them, right? Which is why the Bible is so forceful, so strong when it comes to how we treat other people. And speaking to the Chaldeans, what will happen? Shame eventually will come on them. They have sought to shame others 
and bring glory to themselves, but that will flip over and they will be shamed. Again, God is not on the fence. God is not unmoved. God is not untroubled. God sees and hears and God will respond in the fullness of time. So God pronounces woes on perpetrators of evil. And this is good news. But friends, I have a question or two for you. Um, and my first question is, have you ever in the, in, again, in the laboratory of your own heart, have you ever let the concoction of pride and greed and creativity mull? Have you ever uh, cooked up that concoction in your heart? Has that concoction ever spilled out into your deeds? Have you ever uh, maybe twisted the truth or um, uh, bent the rules slightly to uh, advance or to progress or to enrich yourself in some way? Have you ever offered a sharp word or just, just chucked in that little bit of gossip in order to bring someone else down and to lift yourself up? You know, Jesus pronounces woes on exactly these types of things. He pronounces his woes in Matthew chapter 23. And he's talking to Pharisees who are religious leaders of the time. They are those who would have been considered by many in the culture, the wider culture and society, considered to be um, uh, 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 upstanding and respectable. Jesus speaks in the strongest terms to the Pharisees about exactly these things that I've just been discussing with you. These things which start in our hearts. Jesus pronounces woes. He is utterly opposed to such forms of evil. And friends, oftentimes when we come to the Bible, God's word, we are, we're looking for illumination. We're looking for understanding. We want to get to grips with what God is saying and what it means. But oftentimes, as we do so, we actually find that the, the, you know, we're trying to shine a light on the Bible. We find that the spotlight is turned towards us. We find that we have a place in the biblical story. We find that God doesn't merely speak out there into the air or he doesn't only speak to people who lived a few thousand years ago, but God speaks to you and to me. And we realise that not only is that finger pointed towards the Chaldeans, not only are those guys called out for their evil and uh, unjust ways and their wrongdoing, but we find as we read, as we reflect, we find that the spotlight is turned towards us and the finger of God is turned towards us. And we find that woes are pronounced on us. And... You know, we need to sit with that for a while. It's uncomfortable and in many ways it's scary and our temptation is we want to move really quickly beyond that. But friends, it's important for, for us just to sit with that for a while, to feel the weight of that, to feel the significance of that, to feel the truth of that and just to let that sink in for a few moments. That the God of the Bible, the perfect, beautiful, glorious, holy God of the Bible is utterly opposed to evil, to sin, to wrongdoing. 
is utterly opposed to these things. We ourselves, you and I, have thought and said and done things which are displeasing and dishonouring to God. It's not just the Chaldeans, not just the other examples in the Bible, not just particular figures from history which immediately come to mind, you and I also. And God's finger isn't just pointed at them, it's pointed at us also. We need to sit with that just for a few moments. We are not left alone in darkness. In the middle of the woes, it's, I mean, it's in the mid, like right in the middle of the passage here. And I think that might be deliberate. In the middle of the woes, we have a bright ray of joy which bursts through. In the middle of evil and injustice and suffering and judgment, in the middle of that, we find the bright ray of hope. Verse 14 says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, these things of evil will pass. They will pass because there will be no room for them. They will pass because they will be washed over uh, by God's glory, God's expansive glory. You know, God, Jesus has existed for all eternity. And at a particular point in history, Jesus added a human nature to his God nature. And he stepped into his own creation. And he was born just like the rest of us on earth. And he walked around and he talked and he did ordinary things like we all do. But he also did many, many extraordinary things. He healed sick people. He cast out demons, he performed miracles, he preached and teached about the kingdom of God, essentially the expansion of God's glory to every corner and every crevice of creation. And when Jesus was on earth, it was as though he was putting evil on notice. It was as though he was saying to evil, okay, well, the time is soon to be up. Your time is soon to be up. And Jesus lived a perfect life, a perfectly beautiful life, never put a foot wrong, exemplary in every day, every single day. Jesus was wrongly accused. There was nothing you could really accuse him for. He was accused, he was sentenced, he was killed on a cross, a Roman instrument of torture. He freely gave himself to death. He didn't have to die. He could have called down a legion of angels at any time uh, to take him away, to whisk him away. But he freely gave himself to death. He died on the cross in our place for our wrongdoing, paying himself. He himself paid the debt for our wrongdoing, for our sin, for all the ways that we've turned away from God. All the, all the evil and wrongdoing that we have um, done, that we have performed. Jesus died. Three days later, Jesus came back from the dead. And it was as though as he comes back from the dead, Jesus signs a death warrant on evil and injustice and suffering. He signs a death warrant with his own blood. It is now a done deal. There is no way back. 
the end is nigh for evil, injustice and suffering. Jesus ascends to heaven and even today from heaven, Jesus leads his church and through his church, the glory of God spreads into every place and pushes back the forces of darkness. God is still opposed to evil. And what good news that we as his church, his people have a role to play in that. We have a part to play in that. Jesus will return one day. What will happen when Jesus returns? Let's flick to uh, the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Where is peace and joy and happiness to be found? These things are to be found in God. In fact, apart from God, there is no good. There is only death and destruction and misery. Everything good is in God. Absolutely everything good is in God. And the way has been made open to God. The way has been made open to God. That is the good news of the Bible. The way has been made open to God. The way has been made open to people like you and I. People like you and I who in many senses have wreaked havoc. Uh, people like you and I who have made mistakes. People like you and I, when we, uh, with whom when we, we look in our, on our own hearts, we recognise that our hearts at times are corrupted, our hearts are broken. Uh, we we, we recognise that sometimes we think and say and do things which are displeasing and dishonouring to God. The way to God is open. The way to God is Jesus. And as we walk to God, hand in hand or arm in arm with Jesus, a few things happen. Our record of wrongs is given to him. Our punishment is given to him. Our shame is given to him. But not only that, his perfect reputation is given to us. His peace is given to us. His glory is given to us. Friends, when all is said and done, Jesus has the first and last word. Jesus is absolutely the real deal, can I just say. He is the real deal. And I want to encourage you in the midst of life's difficulties and trials, and tribulations as we look out onto the world in front of us as we survey that scene that that confusing and at times upsetting scene i want to encourage us 
to trust in him. I want to encourage us to keep on trusting in him. I want to encourage us to help one another to trust in him. Friends, can we be the kind of people who, yes, we uh, uh, have our feet firmly on the ground and we recognise some of the troubles and difficulties of our present time and our present age? Absolutely. But can I encourage us also to be those who lift our heads up and look to what is ahead and talk about what is ahead? Jesus is returning. That is a cast iron, rock solid, locked in truth. It will happen. Jesus will return and he will fix everything. And is our heritage as followers of Jesus to look ahead and to look forward and to be excited. So I encourage you to talk about these things. Talk about what is ahead. Talk about the return of Jesus. Look for it and long for it because he is coming back. Jesus wins. Be encouraged.